This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Uh, welcome, everybody. It's ter- terrific to be down. In, I say down in San Diego because I'm from Los Angeles, but it's always wonderful to come down here. Uh, it's a beautiful drive, and uh, I get to see my cousins, uh, my first cousin, Arnie Schoenberg, here, and, and my mom's second cousin, Ruth Kromidas, and so many other friends and, and possibly family members in the audience. It's really a, a real honor and a pleasure to be here to speak to you tonight. So I've been on this incredible journey because of the film Woman in Gold, and we didn't know, it's true, when we set up this this talk, that it would come right as the film has just opened. And uh, it's been really overwhelming for me to be able to, to see people learning now about the story of Maria Altman and her family and the work that I was lucky enough to do for her. So I want to walk you through that story uh, from perhaps a little bit different perspective than you might have seen in the film or read in the book. You can put the three of them together and hopefully come up with a good idea of of what the truth really is. Uh, Okay, so here is my uh, client, Maria Altman. That's Maria. Uh, If you saw the film, Helen Mirren is short and Ryan Reynolds is tall. It was the opposite. Maria was very tall and stately, and I'm, of course, not. And uh, she, Maria was my grandmother's uh, closest friend, my mother's mother, Gertrude Zeisel. Uh, and the Zeisels and the Altmans were very close friends, especially after they came from Vienna to Los Angeles. And my mother really grew up with the Altman children. There are four children that Maria and Fritz had uh, as her surrogate siblings because my mother was an only child. And so the families were, were extremely close, and that's really how I got involved in the story. But we'll go back now uh, over 100 years to Vienna at the turn of the 20th century, so 1900, Vienna 1900. Uh, A little bit of background. Vienna was the capital of Austria-Hungary, this enormous empire, which is now, I think, 12 or 13 different countries. So it was really a vast empire and one of the great world powers. And Vienna was the capital. And after 1867, when Jews were fully emancipated in Austria-Hungary, which is shortly after the U.S. Civil War here, just to put it in perspective, uh, Jews were able to move into Vienna. They were able to own property. They were able to work in businesses for the first time. And so a number of them came from the outlying areas of the empire to Vienna, where they were now allowed to live. And this coincided with the, the Industrial Revolution and great... Uh, uh, opportunities for business and wealth generation. And so a number of Jewish families, not all of them became wealthy, but a number of them became extremely wealthy during this time frame, as did many non-Jews. And one of those wealthy families, actually two of them, were the Blochs and the Bowers. So the Bowers uh, were were banking. They were involved in banking and railroads and real estate. the Blochs were sugar magnates. They had a sugar company that started up in Czechoslovakia, and they came to Vienna and ended up owning pretty much a monopoly on sugar production in Central Europe. And if you've ever been to Central Europe and eaten the pastries, you know how important sugar was to their lifestyle. Uh, 
it, when I first came across this case, I didn't understand. I said, how could you grow cane sugar in, in Austria-Hungary? It wasn't cane sugar. It was uh, beets. They made sugar beets, and they changed, turned that into sugar. Anyway, they became fabulously wealthy, and the families combined when first uh, the older brother Gustav married the older sister Teresa. So, uh, and then there was the younger brother, Ferdinand Bloch, married Adela Bauer. So two brothers married two sisters. The older ones, this is Gustav and Teresa, uh, they all combined their name, right, because Bloch is really ordinary and Bauer is really ordinary, but Bloch-Bauer sounds a little bit fancy. Uh, the, the Bauer's uh, brother died, and so they combined the name to preserve the name, made it a little fancy. Uh, Gustav and Teresa had five children, the youngest of which was Maria. She was a, what we might call an accident or afterthought baby. She was eight years younger than the next youngest, her sister Louisa, and then she had three older brothers after that. So she was really the, the baby of the family. Uh, the younger siblings, Ferdinand and Adela, uh, could not have children. Adela, I think, had several failed pregnancies, uh, stillborn children, very tragic. Uh, and perhaps to compensate for that, Ferdinand and Adela amassed an enormous art collection. And Adela herself was, was a very um, socially engaged person. She liked to entertain and have a salon with artists and intellectuals and politicians of her day. She was also uh, very left-leaning. Her niece Maria called her a socialist socialite. Uh, in, in a way, but she was very, very civic-minded, and you'll see when we get to her will, some of the bequests that she made reflected that. But before we do, let's turn to the, to the Palais where they lived. Pretty nice. This is, if you know the Ring in Vienna, this is one block outside of the Ring, just uh, a block away from the Opera, so a very, very nice part of town, and this was their home. And here are some of the paintings that they had. Now, Ferdinand was a little bit older, a little bit more conservative. His taste was for this style, which they call Biedermeier paintings, uh, painters you may have never heard of, but were very famous at the time. Uh, Ferdinand Waldmüller, Rudolf von Alt, uh, people like that, Danhauser, Ranftel, anyway. They had, had dozens of these type of paintings. They had the largest collection of antique porcelain in the world. Uh, over 300 settings. Each setting is a cup and saucer, and these are some examples of them. Not bad. Um, this was their summer home outside of Prague, where the Blochs were from. Uh, just one aside, so I don't forget about the summer home. When the Nazis came into Czechoslovakia in 1939, they, they confiscated this home and used it as the residence of what they called the Reichs Protector of Bohemian Moravia, like the Nazi governor of that whole area. And so this was the home of Reinhard Heydrich, who many of you may know was the architect of the Final Solution. He is the one that held the infamous Wannsee Conference, where they plotted out the extermination of the Jews. He was living in Ferdinand's home with his family at that time, uh, and then was assassinated, leaving the castle and driving into Prague, which led to a famous massacre of, of uh, Czech, Czech uh, men and boys in a town called Lidice, which there are a number of films were made about even during the war. So this is sort of a storied location in and of itself, but beyond that. Uh, Adela, as we said, and Ferdinand were very involved in the arts, and at the time, at the beginning of the 20th century, the most famous artist in Austria was Gustav Klimt. He had started out as a 
absolutely wonderful academic style painter. He received a number of official commissions from the government to paint murals in large buildings. But he pointed, uh, poked his finger, the finger in the eye of maybe too many officials, uh, started painting things that were not necessarily approved by the academy, and ultimately broke with the academy and formed something called the Secession, which was a, a separate group of artists. He then didn't like the secessionists and went out on his own and really operated on his own until his, his death relatively young in 1918 during the flu epidemic at the end of World War I. Uh, you can see him here in his smock. Apparently, he liked to paint in a long smock with nothing on underneath. Uh, as a result, with his various models, uh, he sired as many as 18 illegitimate children <laughs> who claimed parts of his estate uh, when he died. Uh, so, but he, he, most of those uh, children were from the nude models, maybe working class uh, girls, but then he also had his patrons. And his patrons consisted, because he was modern, right, and, and avant-garde in a way, uh, most of his patrons were the sort of nouveau riche Jewish uh, elite in Vienna, including the Bloch Bowers. But it wasn't just the Bloch Bowers, the, the Laterer family, the Zuckercandle family, those three families bought about 30% of the paintings that Klimt did. So they were really his, his support. And Ferdinand then commissioned uh, Klimt to draw a portrait, or to paint a portrait, I'm sorry, of Adele. These are sketches. He did hundreds of sketches over a period of years before finally finishing the portrait in 1907. And this is the famous woman in gold or lady in gold or gold portrait of Adele Blochbauer. It's one of four gold-layered paintings that Klimt made. It's probably the best preserved these days. Uh, the slightly more famous one that you might see in, in all the dorm rooms here at UCSD would be the Kiss. Uh, which you probably know, and this, this is maybe the next most famous painting by Gustav Klimt, his portrait of Adele Blochbauer, number one. Uh, five years later, he painted a d much different portrait of her. Now, some people suggest that perhaps Adele might have had an affair with Klimt. After all, he was uh, that type of person who, who liked to fool around with his models. Uh, but th those who think that say that well, whatever heat was in the relationship here had vanished by <laughs> 1912. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, you can notice there's some Japanese influence on this one. It's, it's an interesting painting. So besides the two portraits, the Blochbauers also purchased a number of landscapes by Klimt. This is his beechwood or birch trees, depending on whether you look at the thick trees or the thin ones. It has a different title. Uh, the apple trees, this may have been painted at the Blochbauer estate outside of Prague, that, that summer castle. Uh, Klimt was a visitor there several times, and this could have been painted there. They had this uh, slightly unfinished painting. As you see, can see in the, right, in the right corner here, it's a little bit unfinished. This was probably purchased from Klimt's estate when he died in 1918. And then this beautiful Schlosskammer am Attersee, number three, uh, one of a series of four paintings that he did on this lake in Austria just to give you an idea. So they had these six paintings in their beautiful home in Vienna. And then, unfortunately, Adele Blochbauer died very young. She was 42 years old in 1925. She developed meningitis. And in those days, before penicillin was available, that was a deadly and fatal disease. And she died in a matter of days. She had written a will 
several years earlier, uh, probably in, instigated by the death of her mother in, in 1922. And uh, it's a four-page will, and these are two, two of the handwritten pages. And it's written in her hand, uh, but in what we might call legalese. It has a lot of uh, sort of legal construction, and so it's possible that she was advised in this by Maria's father, her brother-in-law, Gustav Blochbauer, who was a lawyer for the family. And in this will, she makes a number of bequests. And remember I said she was very civic-minded and and social-minded. She makes uh, bequests to the... uh, uh, to the orphan society and the worker society, she wants her her library to go to the worker, the people's and workers library, for example. Uh, and there there are very various other bequests here. But the important one for our purposes is this section here, where she says, "My two portraits and the four landscapes by Gustav Klimt." See this word, "Bitte ich meinen Ehegatten." That means I ask, please, my husband, after his death to leave them, here's the verb at the end, to the Austrian State Gallery in Vienna. So among her civic-minded bequests was the idea that her husband, after his death, should give these Klimt paintings, the two portraits and four landscapes, to the Austrian Gallery, which was a newly formed gallery uh, museum in Vienna for Austrian art that was formed from one of the Habsburg palaces uh, after World War I. Here, here it is, uh, the beautiful Belvedere Gallery. Uh, so she made these requests in her will, and interestingly enough, in the what we would call probate proceedings uh, in 1926, Maria's father, Gustav, again, who's the lawyer and, and executor for Adela, filed a document where he says, Adela, or the deceased, makes certain requests in her will which do not have the binding character of a testament. And I'll explain that. And then he says, Uh, But her husband dutifully promises to fulfill her wishes. It should be noted that the Klimt paintings were not her property, but his property. So this is 1926. So what does that mean? So the last one first. The paintings were his property, not her property. It wasn't as if she didn't have property. She owned half of the Palais. She had inherited from her father, the banker, quite a a fortune. Uh, But the Klimt paintings were considered, for whatever reason, not her property, but his in 1926. And the rule at that time, of course, was even if there was a dispute, it was not a community property state, not very uh, feminist at that time, even even if there was a dispute, all property was presumed to be owned by the husband. So however, whatever you think the facts might have been, the law at that time, pretty clear that her husband would have been considered the owner of the paintings. So she makes these requests, which are considered not binding. What does that mean? We have a, a term in the law here in the United States also uh, that refers to certain requests in a will as precatory language. Now, what is precatory language? Uh, the way I like to describe it is, let's say we had a dog, which we don't, but let's say we ha- my wife and I had a dog, and I said in my will, please, my dear wife, after my death, continue to take care of the dog. And I drop dead, and she says, oh, thank God, that dog is out of here, Okay. <laughs> That's fine, because it's just precatory language. It's please take care of the dog. If, on the other hand, I said, as a condition of receiving a penny of my estate, you must agree to take care of the dog until its dying day in the manner to which it's become accustomed, right? that would be clearly binding. Now, it's, it's often unclear, the line between precatory language and binding language, but it's interesting that even in 1926, 
inside Adelia's family, these were considered non-binding requests. But at the time, Ferdinand absolutely intended to fulfill her wishes and donate these paintings to the Austrian gallery when he died. Uh, Ferdinand actually purchased then, after Adele's death, another portrait. This one you'll see in the movie, actually. It's of their friend Amalia Zuckerkandl, who was uh, killed in Belzec in the Holocaust. Uh, this painting hung in Ferdinand's bedroom and still has not been returned by the Austrians. Uh, in 1936, Ferdinand, who was the president of the Friends of the Austrian Gallery, decided to give this painting. So one of the six paintings mentioned in Adela's will, he actually gave to the Austrian Gallery in 1936 before the Nazis came in, leaving him with five plus the Zuckerkandl painting that I just showed you. So he had six again. It makes it a little confusing. Uh, in 1937, at the end of 37, Maria, Maria Altman, or Maria Blochbauer then, married Fritz Altman. Maria is Ferdinand's niece. If you saw the film, she receives a, a, a necklace of Adele, diamond necklace, uh, for her wedding. Fritz and Maria then go on a honeymoon into the Alps, and they return, and a few weeks later, March of 1938 is the Anschluss, the famous Nazi annexation of Austria. This is the day when the world was turned upside down for Austrian Jews. Jews in Germany had had since 1933 five years to adjust slowly to the increasing difficulties and regulations and discriminatory uh, laws related to Jews. But for Austrian Jews, it went from freedom to pariah status in one day. And this is what Maria and her family faced. Uh, let's see, the next slide is, is already 1939, but let me tell you what, what happened to Maria's family. So Ferdinand Blochbauer fled immediately on the eve of the Anschluss, first to his castle in Prague, and then as the Nazis annexed Czechoslovakia over the next six to 12 months, he went to Zurich, Switzerland. And he actually lived in a hotel in Zurich, Switzerland until the end of the war in 1945, when, when he died in November 1945, never having returned back to Austria, never having seen any of his family again, never having recovered any of his property. His property was uh, confiscated by the Nazis who imposed taxes on Jews in various different ways. With Ferdinand, because he had owned this large sugar company, what they did was they said the sugar company had made illegal donations to the previous government, advertising and things like that. And so they said there were deficiencies on the corporation's taxes. The company didn't pay the right amount of taxes. Rather than have his company pay the taxes, they charged the directors of the company, Ferdinand and others, uh, other Jewish directors of the company, to pay the taxes that the company had owed. And so Ferdinand in exile was faced with this huge tax judgment that then allowed the Austrians to confiscate all of his property. And in January 1939, this is less than 12 months after the Anschluss, there is a meeting in Ferdinand's home with members, this says who was there, all the members of the various official agencies, including the Gestapo, including a representative of Adolf Hitler, uh, including members of the Austrian Museum, World And they went through and listed all of the artworks in his home and made little check marks and notations of which, who was going to get what, where each one was going to go. You can see the Klimt paintings actually listed first here. But this is, this is all of the artworks. 
because what the Nazis did when they invaded countries, and Austria was the first country they invaded, was they targeted Jewish families to take away their wealth and take away their art as part of that wealth. And one of the reasons they were so interested in art is that Hitler himself had been a failed artist. He had actually tried to study in Vienna and applied to the academy, was not let in, unfortunately, as, as Maria liked to say, and it's in the film, too bad they didn't let him in, because oh, the whole world would have been much better if he could have just painted little pictures. Uh, <laughs> But he, he decided he wanted to be a great art collector. And what that meant was going and taking whatever he wanted from Jewish families who had fled or were, were uh, imprisoned or deported as a result of Nazi persecution. And he had a competitor. His henchman, Hermann Goering, also thought of himself as a great art connoisseur. And so the two of them would, would go around and try to compete and, and uh, snap up all of the artworks. And so some of the Blochbauer paintings went to uh, Hitler, some went to Goering, Most of, mostly the old, old-fashioned Austrian Biedermeyer paintings. The Klimts, however, were too modern for the, for the big Nazis. But they did attract the eye of the Austrian uh, museum officials, who were themselves Nazis, but not, not the same. And uh, they liked the Klimts. And so the Klimt paintings were, were sold off by a lawyer, who was appointed to liquidate Ferdinand's estate. His name was Erich Führer, which is sort of an uh, unfortunate name. Uh, but he was a, a, a big Nazi, and he came in and liquidated all of Ferdinand's property to pay off this judgment. And so he, he sold a number of the paintings to various Austrian museums or traded them. So let's, let's walk through that. I think that's... Sorry, before I do that, the painting that Hitler took, you can see it in the movie, is this Waldmüller um, portrait of, of Count Esterhazy. Um, okay, let's go back to the paintings. Let me show you where they all went. So Dr. Fuhrer in 1941 went to the Austrian gallery and said, uh, you know, we have these, these paintings. The Austrian gallery was interested. And so they made a trade. And he actually traded the gold portrait and the apple tree picture, and in return got back this Schlosskammer am Attersee. So it was a two-for-one deal. He took this one back and then flipped it and sold it. This is all to pay off the taxes that have been imposed on Ferdinand. Who did he sell it to? He sold it to a man named Gustav Uschitzky. Who is Gustav Uschitzky? He's a very famous uh, Nazi film director who, whose most successful Nazi film was called Heimkehr, or Returning Home, about the invasion of Poland. Uh, but his other claim to fame was that he was one of those 18 illegitimate kids of Gustav Klimt, and he used all the money from his Nazi propaganda films to buy up whatever Klimt paintings were around, uh, including this one, that, the one that Ferdinand had actually donated to the museum. Okay, what happened to the other ones? Uh, the second portrait of Adele was then sold two years later by Dr. Fuhrer to the Austrian gallery. So the Austrian gallery ended up with the two portraits and the apple tree. Uh, the birch trees was sold to the City Museum of Vienna, another Vienna museum. And the houses on Unterach was taken by Dr. Fuhrer along with 11 other paintings to pay himself for a job well done liquidating the estate. Uh, the, the portrait of Amalia Zuckerkandl was uh, somehow went through the hands of her son-in-law into the hands of a dealer who then sold it to her husband and it had a much different story. And uh, it's one of the reasons it hasn't been returned because her family also claims it should be returned to them. 
Okay, what happened to the rest of uh, Ferdinand's family? Maria and Fritz, some of you may have seen the film, uh, their escape was, was every bit as dramatic as portrayed in the film. Uh, what actually happened was probably even worse. Fritz was actually sent to Dachau for two months in the summer of 1938. Why? Because his older brother Bernard was like Fernand Blochbauer, a very wealthy industrialist. He was a uh, sweater manufacturer, and he fled as soon as the Nazis came into Vienna. And he, he's a very smart guy. He immediately wired all of his customers and said, don't send any money to Vienna, I'll come and pick it up. And so he went to Budapest and Rome and Paris and London and picked up the receivables that were due his company, picked up all the money and started a new business in Liverpool. Okay? He was the type of person, I think, you could drop him on a deserted island on Friday and on Monday he'd already be a millionaire. <laughs> so he starts up a new company in Liverpool and the Nazis are upset because they want to take his whole his whole uh, business, and he's stolen the money from his own business. So they, they decided to arrest Fritz, his younger brother, and sent him to Dachau and held him hostage until his older brother agreed finally to return the money uh, and sign away his company to the Nazis, uh, which he managed to do miraculously in, uh, in several months. So Maria was actually flown to Berlin with the Gestapo and an agent of Fritz's brother went to Berlin and they signed documents and traded the money and, uh, and Fritz was ultimately released. But even after he was released, they were under house arrest and they made three failed attempts to escape before finally uh, going to a dentist's office and escaping out the back, similar to what you saw maybe in the film, uh, and, and to safety. Uh, of course, it wasn't immediately to safety. They had to get out of Germany. They flew to Cologne, where the person they were supposed to meet didn't make it, and they had to make their way north to the border with Holland and managed to find someone who, who was able to smuggle them across the border. Maria had to go through barbed wire and scratched herself, apparently, uh, getting into Holland where they were still not safe because at that point they were illegal aliens in Holland and Holland had uh, the practice that time of returning escaping Jews back to Germany. So they had to actually then evade the Dutch police once they were in Holland until finally they met up with Fritz's brother Bernard who flew them to safety in Liverpool. They then went to Fall River, Massachusetts where Bernard set up yet another factory to make sweaters in the United States, and from there they came to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, in around 1942, and there they connected again with their friends, the Tzizels, my mother's parents, and that's, that's how my family gets uh, involved with the, with the Altmans after, after the war. Um, Maria's, uh, the rest of her family, her sister, managed to go to uh, Yugoslavia initially with her husband, who was a Jewish lumber baron, Baron Gutmann, they hid through the war in Croatia. Uh, there was a deportation. Almost all of the, the Jews in Yugoslavia were deported, first to Jozenovitz and then to Auschwitz and, and murdered. Almost none of them survived, but they managed to uh, avoid deportation last minute and hide out the end of the war. At the end of the war, Tito and the communists came in and then arrested Luisa's husband and executed him for being a capitalist. So after surviving as a Jew in hiding in Yugoslavia under the Nazis, he then was executed, and Maria's sister and their two young children escaped then to Israel and from there to Vancouver, where they were reunited with Maria's mother and, uh, and the uh, three older brothers who all went to Vancouver. Okay, so what happened then? 
after the war ended, as I mentioned, Ferdinand died, and he left behind a will that gave his estate to his two nieces and one of his nephews. There's no mention of any gift of paintings to the Austrian gallery, of course, because he didn't have them. The paintings were stolen. Uh, only to only his nieces and nephews, and their and their only claim after he died was the hope for restitution. Now this is in the end of 1945. When I first became involved, I didn't understand why why after the war, when when the Allies conquered Austria, why couldn't you just walk in and, and get your property back? Uh, civilians were not allowed into Austria until almost two years after the end of the war. And it wasn't until 1948 that Austria enacted restitution laws that allowed Jewish families to try to recover their property. So it took three years from the end of the war before it was possible to recover anything. And the heirs of Ferdinand Blochbauer hired a friend in Vienna, Gustav Rienisch. Sorry, everybody's named Gustav in the story. It's Gustav Klimt and Gustav Blochbauer and Gustav Rienisch. Gustav Rienisch is the lawyer for the family, and his job is to try to recover as much as he can of the Blochbauer property. So the shares of the sugar company, the, the home, the, the artworks principally. And he, uh, his job was not so easy. The Austrian gallery was closed at that time, and he wrote letters. And ultimately, he discovered that some of the Klimt paintings, three of them, were in the Austrian gallery. And he wrote to the museum at the end of 1947, beginning of 1948, and said, what is your position with regard to my client's restitution claim, which was just coming into effect? And the museum said, what restitution claim? These paintings were donated to us by Adele Blochbauer in her will, and her husband was only allowed to keep them during his lifetime. But the paintings belong to us. We only have three of them, and it's your responsibility to find the other three and bring them to us. Otherwise, we're going to sue the estate. So they took a very aggressive approach. And uh, Dr. Rienisch didn't have the will of Adela Blochbauer. He actually looked for it, but the file was with the state attorney. Uh, and in the meantime, he had managed to recover some other paintings. So remember I said 12 paintings were taken by Dr. Fuhrer, the Nazi lawyer liquidating the estate, including one of the Klimts. And so he found these 12. Uh, there were other paintings that also he was recovering uh, at that time. If you saw the Monuments Men last year with George Clooney, right? So George Clooney and his merry band of men find these giant caves full of artworks that were taken by Hitler and Goering and for the planned Führer Museum in Linz. And they find these in, in salt mines in Salzburg. And they bring them back to Munich. And from Munich, rather than set up a procedure where people could claim their stolen property. They said, no, we're not going to deal with that. We're going to just return the artworks to their country of origin. So in this case, Gustav Rienisch had to ask the Austrians to ask the Americans in Munich to send the paintings to Austria, and then he had to apply to the Austrian government to get them back. And once he got them back in Vienna, he wanted to send them off to his clients in Canada and the United States. So then he had to go back to the Austrians and ask for an export permit. Austria, like many uh, countries, had laws in place that limited the export of cultural artifacts, including paintings. And so you were not allowed to export artworks, even to families who had survived and escaped the Nazis, without permission. And what the Austrians then did is they took advantage of this situation and they denied export permits for Jewish families 
not just the Blochbauers, but the Rothschild family, the later family, the Zuckerkandl family, all of these families that had large collections, whoever survived wanted to take what was recovered out and they had to face this export restriction. And what the Austrian authorities would do is they'd say, no, nothing can, can leave. And if you appealed, they would say, well, you've got 20 paintings. If you would donate five of them to our museum, we'll let the other 15 go. And so they used this law to extort donations from Jewish families who, for very good reason, did not want to come back and live in Austria after World War II. And Dr. Renish was faced with this dilemma, what to do with the paintings that he recovered, what to do about the Klimt paintings, given the, the museum's position. And so he had a meeting in April 1948 with the authorities, and he said... The heirs will acknowledge the will of Adele Blochbauer and leave the Klimt paintings in the museum. We'll try to help you uh, recover the other ones. One of them uh, he had already. And he said, and I hope by that to get your agreement to let the other paintings out, several dozen other paintings, porcelain, drawings, etc. They still had to donate some porcelain, some of the drawings that were recovered, uh, but he was successful, and he managed to export to his clients several dozen artworks. Uh, I, Maria had a couple of them in her home uh, in, in Los Angeles. But the Klimt painting stayed in Vienna, and if you had asked Maria, the baby of the family, what had happened to the Klimt paintings before 1998, she would have said, well, it's too bad my aunt Adela gave them to the museum, so we never, got, we never saw them again. They went from, from her uncle's home, where they were in a memorial room, to her aunt, and, and they were then lost after the, after the war. Uh, but then in 1998, everything changed. There was a, an exhibit in New York at the Museum of Modern Art of artworks by uh, a, another Austrian painter, a contemporary of Klimt, named Egon Schiele. And two of those paintings were alleged to be stolen from, from uh, Jewish families. And the district attorney in New York, Mr. Morgenthau, decided to seize the paintings as stolen property. And this was right at the end of 1997. Caused a big outcry, especially in Austria. And the Austrian minister said, this is ridiculous. We don't have stolen paintings in Austria. Everything was given back after the war. We can't be accused of this. Whereupon, this amazing journalist, Hubertus Czernin, decided to do some research, and he went into the archives in the Austrian gallery and in the Federal Monument Agency and discovered this extortionate procedure that had happened after the war. And he discovered that many of the provenance uh, stories around Austrian paintings were false. So, for example, in the guidebook to the Austrian gallery, the gold portrait of Adele Blochbauer said, donated in 1936. And he found the letter signed Heil Hitler, Erich Fuhrer, with trading it in 1941. So he wrote this big series of articles, an expose, about the fishy way that Austria obtained a lot of these paintings. And to Austria's credit, the minister, Minister Gehrer, proposed a new law. And the new law said that if our federal museums, if our public museums have artworks that either were never returned or were returned and then traded to our museum in exchange for export permits, we're going to give them back. And this was around September 1998. So Maria Altman got a call from uh, former Austrian general consul in Los Angeles, Peter Moser, who later became the ambassador from Austria. And uh, she, he told her about this new law. And she hung up the phone and then decided 
to try to call my mother. My grandmother, her, her best friend, had died about 10 years earlier, but she kept up with my mother and knew that I was a lawyer. My parents actually were not in town, and so she looked me up and called me directly in my office. And at that time, I was, I was working in a, um, a small office of a large New York firm, downtown Los Angeles, named Fried Frank, Harris Shriver, and Jacobson. And uh, the Shriver is Sergeant Shriver, for example. Uh, so it's a big New York firm. And I got this call from Maria Altman, who I knew as my grandmother's good friend. I'd probably last seen her when my sister got married. Uh, and she said, Randy, I just got this call from Vienna about this new law in Austria, and I'd like to speak to you about possibly recovering my family's paintings. And, and I said, I, I sort of know what you're talking about because I had gone online uh, to see what was going on in Vienna because my parents were in Vienna at that time. And... Uh, and had seen an article about this. And so just by coincidence, I had read that, and she called. And so I was very excited about it. I didn't know at, at the time what the story of the paintings was. I had seen the portrait of Adele Blochbauer when I was a, a teenager and went to Vienna for the first time. And I remember my mom pointing the painting out and saying, you know, your grandmother's friend Maria Altman, that's her aunt, Adele Blochbauer. And I remember it just because Adele Blochbauer is such a weird name. That for, for an American kid to hear. And so I remember seeing the painting and knowing about the painting, but I didn't have any idea about what had happened to it, that even that her family had owned it. But Maria then met with me and told me her story. And she told me about her escape uh, with Fritz, and she told me about these paintings. And her sister had just died, and she had obtained from her niece some of the documents her sister had left behind, including a letter from this lawyer, Gustav Rienisch, talking about this meeting he had in 1948 with the officials trying to get export permits, etc. And it really looked like this new law would apply to the recovery of these paintings. But what to do? We waited for the law to go into effect, and what Austria did actually was not allow anybody to file a claim or file a lawsuit. They set up an internal procedure with an advisory board that was going to decide what painting should be returned. So I helped Maria approach this board and say we had documents and sent them the documents. And we waited really for a decision, which came then in June of 1999. The Blochbauer was the, the third case that they handled. They returned hundreds of artworks to the Rothschild family, some artworks to the later family, and then turned to the Blochbauer. And for the Blochbauers, they agreed to give them back some drawings and some porcelain, but they said the Klimt paintings must stay because they were donated by Adele Blochbauer in her will. So at that point, Marie and I had to decide what to do. And I, I actually asked the Austrians at that time if they would arbitrate the issue of the will. Because remember, I had already seen that Maria's father had said these requests were not binding in 1926. Also, Dr. Renish had said it doesn't look like they're binding. Uh, and so I thought this should be a legal issue decided by Austrian arbitrators. But I was told by Minister Gehrer in a letter uh, if you don't like it, go to court. So I'm a lawyer, right? You'd never say go to court to a litigator. That's really not a very smart thing. Uh, so I decided, okay, Maria, we should try to, to sue and, and recover this. So I found an Austrian lawyer because, of course, the paintings were in Austria. It seemed like that would be the place you would want to file a lawsuit. And I found an Austrian lawyer who said, well, there's no real right to file a lawsuit under this new law, but maybe we could do some sort of declaratory relief action over this issue of the will. 
And I said, well, that sounds great. Why don't you prepare it? And he prepared it. And then he said, you know, to file a lawsuit in Austria, you have to pay court costs. I said, okay, that's the same here. What are the costs? He said, no, you don't understand. It's a percentage of the value at stake in the litigation. So in this case, to file the lawsuit, you have to have about $2 million. So Maria, who at that point was, was in her mid-80s, uh, still selling dresses out of her home, uh, obviously did not have $2 million to throw away on a, a lawsuit in Austria, uh, which already had uh, you know, a lot of hurdles that we would have to get over. And so we, we sort of thought of giving up, uh, but I, I wouldn't give up. And I, I looked very naively at the idea of suing in the United States. I thought Maria Altman came to the United States in the early 1940s. She was already a citizen when this trade happened. She's been here for 60 years. Why shouldn't she be allowed to sue in the United States? And so I looked in the law books uh, in, in our federal rules, and there is a, there's a statute called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976. And you can tell by the title of the act that the, that the ordinary rule is that foreign states are immune from lawsuits. You cannot sue a foreign state in U.S. courts. But there are exceptions, and they're small exceptions. And one of the exceptions said that you can sue a foreign state if the case concerned property taken in violation of international law, okay, where the property is owned or operated by an agency or an instrumentality of a foreign state, which is engaged in a commercial activity in the United States. So I read that and thought, okay, the Nazis took it. That should be a violation of international law. They're owned or operated by the museum, which is an agency or instrumentality of Austria, a foreign state. And the museum is engaged in commercial activities in the United States. They sell books. They, I found a book that they published with Yale University Press. They advertise. They accept U.S. credit cards. They have connections with the United States, so I think we can sue. And I tried to convince my big law firm uh, to do this, but they were not really in the business of tilting at windmills and suing foreign countries. Uh, and, and so I ultimately decided to leave the big firm that I was in, and I opened up my own small office. I rented out a, a tiny office from, from a friend of mine who had a real estate company, and I drafted a complaint against Austria, and I went down to court and I filed this complaint. And it didn't cost $2 million. It cost about $165. And I, I, there's an email I wrote to Maria at the time saying, I just hope that we can keep the case alive. Because my, my hope always was that if, if we haven't lost completely, there's something could happen and we could win. And, uh, and so we filed this lawsuit, and Austria, of course, hired a big firm to represent it, and they did what any lawyer would do. They filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit at the outset. And they had a number of different grounds, and one of them was that we should not be able to rely on this Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 because the case concerns events that took place in the 30s and 40s. It would be impermissibly retroactive to apply a law from 1976 to events that took place earlier. Fortunately, we had a terrific district court judge, uh, the late Florence Marie Cooper, and much to everybody's surprise, she ruled in our favor and denied the motion to dismiss. So Austria had an immediate right to appeal. Normally you don't, but if it's a foreign sovereign immunity issue, it goes immediately on appeal. And they went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal in Pasadena. And I argue then for the first time in front of three judges in the Ninth Circuit. And again, 
with a miracle we won, a 3-0 opinion. So we were feeling really good, right? Everything's going our way. Um, Austria then filed a motion for reconsideration or rehearing, and they were joined by the U.S. government. Apparently, the U.S. government started getting calls after the Ninth Circuit decision saying, what's going on in crazy California? Are we going to be sued, right? Mexico and Japan and Poland and France. Everybody was worried that all historic wrongs would now be litigated in California. <laughs> and, and the U.S. government, the State Department, their job is to, uh, is to pacify foreign states so that we can fly our planes over them or, or do whatever we want. Uh, and so they took, actually, Austria's side and asked the Ninth Circuit to reconsider its decision. Fortunately, the Ninth Circuit did not. The judges did not reconsider. Uh, but then Austria petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't grant a lot of petitions for cases. They hear only about 75 or 80 cases uh, a year. But when you have a foreign country complaining and the U.S. government is on the foreign country side, it's, uh, it's a little unusual, and so they took the case. And then, of course, all bets were off. I think if you had talked to any lawyer in the country about this, they would have said that I had, had less than a zero chance of winning. But I prepared to go to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to argue this case for Maria Altman. And I did several moot court practice sessions. These are uh, law schools set them up for lawyers going to the Supreme Court to practice. Judges, people, professors and other lawyers will pre pretend to be the justices and ask you lots of questions. And I did three of these. And I really thought I was ready. And I went to Washington in, in February of 2004. And... Uh, I had sort of a gallows humor because no one thought I was I had any chance of winning. And my, my goal was really just to get one justice on our side to tell our side of the story. Uh, but I really didn't have any expectations beyond that. But by the time I got up to speak, I was the last speaker. First Austria's lawyer and then the U.S. government lawyer spoke. Uh, I, I felt the justices were at least entertaining our side of, of the issue. And so I got up to speak. And I said, there are four grounds for affirming the Ninth Circuit. Ground one is, and as soon as I finished the first sentence, I got interrupted by Justice Souter. In the film, it's Justice Rehnquist, but it was really Justice Souter, who, very smart, very smart justice. Uh, he's since retired, but he had this heavy New England drawl. It was a little hard to uh, understand. And, and to me, the question sounded like, da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, like that. And... And I had, I, I, I had no idea what he had just asked me. And, and unfortunately, there's a tape of this, so you can go online and, and hear it. But I, I said, um, uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't understand the question. And you can hear the gasps in the audience behind me. But all the other justices smiled as if to say, oh, he does that all the time. We didn't understand it either. It was, it was this incredible ice-breaking moment because... They realized I was, who was I? I was just a kid from Los Angeles representing my grandmother's friend, trying to convince the U.S. Supreme Court that we should be able to sue Austria to recover paintings that had never left Vienna, right? So it, it was a crazy situation. And, and so he rephrased. He was very nice. He rephrased the question. I answered as best I could and moved on. And the rest of the argument went like a dream. Really, I, I just, I floated out of the courtroom. I was so happy. And my father, who's a retired judge, for the first time he said, you know, I think you might have a chance. Uh, and, and we were just so ecstatic. And I, I returned home and I opened up the Daily Journal, which is our legal, legal newspaper for 
for Southern California, for Los Angeles. And the headline was, Court Likely to Reverse Altman Suit. It was all about how we were going to lose, a full page about all the arguments. And, and so I called up the reporter, this guy Dave Pike, uh, and, and I said, you know, you could have at least said Randy does a good job, but court likely to reverse, right? Because no one saw what had happened. It was so terrific. And he's not, trust me, I've been reporting for 34 years at the Supreme Court. I can tell by the body language, you don't stand a chance. So I said, okay, everybody thinks that anyway. Uh, I said, do me a favor. When the court announces the decision, they don't tell the lawyers in advance. They just announce one day later in the term. And I said, you'll be there first. Can you give me a call? Here's my home number. You can call me. So sure enough, three months later, I'm making breakfast for the kids, right? And, and there's this call. And it's this journalist, Dave Pike. And I said, okay, give me the bad news. And he said, no, not bad news. You won, right? And I just, I dropped the phone. I can't even remember what, what else happened. And I was so excited. And I got dressed and, and, and raced over to Maria's house, and her kids came over, and we hugged and celebrated, and then we realized, what did we win, right? <laughs> Nothing. We won the right to start a lawsuit in Los Angeles. And it was 2004, uh, six years into this. So we entered in what I, what I lovingly call discovery hell, which is where litigators like me, we torture each other back and forth, writing letters and interrogatories and making our lives miserable. And we did that for about a year and a half. And then we had to do a court-ordered mediation. Now, up to this point, Austria had refused every request I made to sit down and discuss a resolution of the case. They wouldn't even talk to us. And so when we had to do a mediation, I said, I'm not going to waste my time. You bring a mediator. You tell us where. We'll show up. We'll get it over with and be done with it because I'm tired of this. So we brought Maria to the, the other attorney's office, and Austria brought a mediator from, from Austria, a professor from Austria. And very quickly, he sat us down, and he said, I sense from both sides you want this over with. So, of course, we did. I think each side had a different idea of what over with meant. Uh, and... And he said, well, I have an idea. Why don't we have an arbitration in Austria? You pick one arbitrator, they pick the other, those two pick a third, and have it decided in Austria. And I thought, wow, they finally came around. It's only been seven years since I proposed that. And I was, I was very excited, and I pulled Maria aside, and I said, isn't this great? We can have this arbitration. And she said, are you crazy? Why would I want my case to go back to Austria. The district court judges love us. The Ninth Circuit loves us. Even six out of nine Supreme Court justices love us. Why would I want to do this? And I said, Maria, you're 89 years old. This case has a lot of uh, procedural hurdles still to get over. They could drag it out for another four or five years. It could go back up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Even if we win in the United States, Austria would not have to comply with the U.S. judgment. We don't ha actually have a treaty with Austria on enforcement of judgments, as crazy as that is. I said, Maria, I, I think we need to take this chance. And fortunately, she trusted me and allowed me to do it. And I went back to Austria and argued the case. Uh, it was mostly in German. I had a translator there. Uh, but I could, I could do most of it in German. And and, of course, there are no live witnesses to the will of Adele Blochbauer from 1923 or 25. So it was all about the documents and, and reading things that were hard to read uh, and some of the legal issues. And, and we submitted the case. It's not like in the, in the film. For those of you who've seen it, it's sort of immediate gratification. But 
But the filmmakers, I think, nicely decided not to have everybody wait for five months in the theater for the decision. Uh, the reality was that, that it was about five months later. I, I was returning home from a, from a Sunday night poker game where I had lost a little money and feeling dejected. And I checked my BlackBerry after midnight, and there it was, the decision of the arbitrators. And, of course, you can't read anything on a BlackBerry, so I had to go to my computer open up the decision, and it's in German, and the verb is like on page five. And, but it took, took me a while, and I realized we won. We won. All three arbitrators agreed with the position we had taken from the very beginning, which was that Maria's aunt died and made these requests to her husband, which were not binding. The paintings were owned by him. He died in exile after the paintings were confiscated and left his estate to his heirs and not the museum. And so the only reason that the paintings were in the museum was that Dr. Renish, the, the family's attorney, gave up these paintings to get export permits for other paintings and get them out of the country, which was exactly what this law was designed to reverse. So these paintings were essentially donated in exchange for export permits. They did not agree with the Austrian position on Adela's will, and so we won. And then we really did celebrate because it was a huge event. Um, I have some pictures here from the Supreme Court. And then uh, following the decision uh, of the arbitrators, we, we took the paintings out. It's different than in the film. Austria had actually required that we agree to an, uh, a whole long procedure that could have taken several months where they could have purchased the paintings. But very quickly, they abandoned that. The Austrians said they didn't want to purchase the paintings, and so we had to decide what to do with them. And so I called up Stephanie Barron, who's a curator at the L.A. County Museum of Art, and I said, Stephanie, how'd you like to have a Klimt exhibit tomorrow, right? And she, uh, she said, yes, maybe not tomorrow, but in a couple of weeks. And in about four weeks, she put together an exhibit of these five magnificent paintings. And for me, that was really the greatest moment because we had Maria – and these five paintings that were once in her family home, in her uncle and aunt's home, all in one room, just like they had been back in Vienna. And she was there with her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchild at that time and her nieces and nephews. And everybody came to be as a family with these paintings. And that, for me, was, was the moment uh, of, the, of the whole case, that I could have achieved that for Maria, my grandmother's good friend. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Randy, very much for all you've done. You really did a marvelous job. It's just uh, outstanding. Everybody appreciates it. Could you just fill us in on where the Estee Lauder family came into this whole thing? And, sure. And maybe bring us up to date as to what happened with them. There was a lot of money floating around here. Could you bring that up to date, too? Sure. It actually fits with this slide that I, that I was putting on while you were speaking. Uh, the, the painting, the gold portrait of Adele Blochbauer, was purchased by Ronald Lauder, and uh, with that he agreed to put it on permanent display at the Neue Gallery in New York, which is uh, on 86th and 5th, sort of near the, the Met and the Jewish Museum up there in that area on the Upper East Side. Um, and uh, th I love this, this uh, juxtaposition here because you see these two statues here, so these were listed on that inventory in Ferdinand's uh, house as two statues by Georg Minne. Georg Minne is a Belgian symbolist sculptor. Um, 
but they didn't have a photograph of the family didn't have a photograph and they were never recovered and after the gold portrait was returned the austrians realized that these two statues they had in the austrian gallery uh had had uh, arrived at the austrian gallery in 1942 and that they must be the same as the ones that fernand blochbauer had lost because here they are in the first exhibit of the gold portrait in 1907 in Mannheim. So they ended up returning these two sculptures to the family in 2007, and it was my idea I convinced the family to donate them then to the Neue Galerie so they could be reunited 100 years later with the gold portrait, and that's where you'll see them today. I was there uh, last month uh, to see them. The, the other uh, paintings were auctioned off, at Christie's, it was at the time the largest or the most successful auction of all time. Uh, was Of course, you couldn't know that in advance when you put uh, so many paintings by one artist uh, up, up for auction. Um, the, Maria was not the only heir. There were, there were four other heirs, the heirs of her brother and sister, and, and uh, really none of them wanted or could afford to have one of these paintings in their home. Uh, you can imagine a, a 90-year-old woman living with, with a painting like this in her home uh, wouldn't necessarily be a, a safe thing. And so they, they decided, uh, rather than wait for uh, estate taxes to force them to sell, that they would, they would dispose of the property that way, um, return the gold portrait to a museum setting by selling it to Ronald Lauder and allowing the other four to go back into private hands of people who live like Ferdinand Blochbauer did uh, with, with uh, perhaps too much money uh, and, and, uh, the, and the love of beautiful art. And so, so four of the paintings are in private collections. Um, the, the other portrait of Adela, the white portrait, if we go back to that, was just put on loan by whoever owns it. Uh, who's apparently remodeling, uh, uh, at, at the Museum of Modern Art. So now if you go to New York, you can see both portraits of Adele Blochbauer. And I, I presume that over time, uh, the other landscapes will, will come back into public view uh, as well. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much for, for coming tonight. Thank you.